0: Hello, spoiler Special subscribers. I'm June Thomas, Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts. I'm slipping into your feed to let you know that a new season of The Americans Podcast launched today, March 29th. Every episode is packed full of spoilers and behind-the-scenes chats with the show's cast and crew. I'm not going to put every episode into this feed, but if you'd like to hear more insider scoop about Season 6 of The Americans, please subscribe to The Americans podcast. Thanks, comrades, and now enjoy episode one. The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans We're Discussing before you listen to the podcast. New episodes of the show air Wednesdays at 10pm on FX.
1: As we move towards the ending, it's as if we're in a shrinking tunnel. You're moving forward towards this target and everything is getting narrower and narrower around you, so the margin for error and your ability to correct is constantly lessening and that has just intensified the whole process for everyone.
0: And welcome to the Americans podcast for the sixth and final season. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts and your host for the series, which goes behind the scenes of the show. Later, I'll chat with the Americans costume designer, Katie Irish, about how she conveys character through clothes. And director Chris Long will explain why the streets of Mexico City might have seemed a little empty. But first, let's hear from showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, who wrote this episode, number six oh one, Dead Hand. I began by asking them why they jumped ahead to 1987. What was so special about that year?
2: Joe Weisberg offers the first response. A big part of 87 was what was going on in the Soviet Union. Mm. So that, that's the that's the big association. That Gorbachev uh, took control in '85. It was by '87 that Perestroika and Glasnost had had kicked in enough that there was no no real mistake in, mistaking what was going on. That doesn't mean that people here at that time, many people weren't still wondering what he was doing, if it was for real, if it really meant that much. But there was nevertheless no mistaking that these policies were happening and taking place by 87. And we wanted to come back at a time when that was the case so that you could see, uh, as you already start to do in, in the opening of the show... What that might mean to Philip and Elizabeth, and how it might affect their work and, therefore, their relationship—those two things being so so closely intertwined mm-hmm. and, and providing such a engine for our show.
0: When we do see them, they are not in sync. To state the obvious, but this is just a projection on my part. But that feels like that would be hard for you guys to have them be so at odds.
1: Personally, hard. Creatively, much easier. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, conflict is, is conflict is easy. And uh, Or it's easier to to mine dramatically than non-conflict. And as we planned out seasons five and six, we wanted to bring them together, get them to this place of love and mutual giving at the end of season five, and then jump forward and see what the sad results of those gifts were.
2: As writers, once you come up with the idea that Philip's going to be spying on Elizabeth, Talk about not being in sync. You'll get more not in sync than that. As writers, you're like rubbing your hands together. You're like, oh, yeah, here we go. As people, you feel a little bad, but more at
1: that (laughs) point, you're more a writer
2: than a person. Got it.
0: So three years in history is somewhat significant, but for the characters... Three years of silence is, is feels such a long time for people that we've actually, there's not been a huge spread of time over the first five seasons, and you've done very few jumps and really just a few months, really. Right. So how did you approach trying to convey that familiar characters were a little bit different, but significantly or noticeably different than the last time we saw them?
1: It's always tricky on this show because we, we try never to point at that stuff. Paige got a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> she looks, she looks, I she mean, look, I guess she stopped. she looks great. Doesn't she, yeah. she
2: stop yeah. coming to
0: Luke younger than she is? Yeah. I guess.
2: I mean, that haircut was a big deal. It really, it, it was a very important part of selling that time, time jump and having it be clear. We looked at a lot of photographs of Ali Sheedy and Holly Hunter, but you know, the, the three years, by the way, was a very big choice. I mean, we could have come back in 88. It maybe it could have been 86 in terms of the politics we were talking about. 87 was ideal, but we felt having three years, was about right in terms of how much change we wanted. You saw at the end of last season that Philip was going to quit his job and just be a travel agent. And we thought a lot about how much time do we want that to have been going on, that he's been out of the family business so that we can come back at a time where that's really been the case and would have affected them so much Mm -hmm. so that you can come back. And they've been living that way for really a long time. So that we can show it the way we do it at the, at the beginning of six oh one, where with really just almost little looks and little gestures, you can get a feeling that that's been their life for a while. Right, things kind of kind of solidified, not necessarily calcified, but but solidified.
0: Speaking of Philip, he's a full time capitalist now, but he doesn't seem terribly good at it. He's trying hard. Is it that he's not a good capitalist?
2: I don't know if we ever literally asked ourselves that exact question: Is he bad at it? You know, we're going to be telling that. Story. We don't want to give too much away Mm -hmm. about his his capitalism and how it progresses. Um, I think the most important point is what you said, that he tries very hard. That's what we want to explore.
1: I think it's less a story about how good or bad Philip is at capitalism and more a story about what embracing capitalism does to a person.
0: What does it do to him?
2: Well, watch and see. You're going to have to see. By the way, though, I don't think he's bad at it. I don't get that feeling. I don't get the feeling that he's bad at it.
0: He seems very stressed. Like, he he seems more stressed than he ever did as a spy.
1: Well, I think that's really an interesting observation because a lot of what we American capitalists perceive
2: as success is a very stressful life. I also think there's a suggestion that we've sort of hit upon the place where there may be – maybe, maybe some inherent weakness – if you don't come from the capitalist society. So as a spy, he was able to train to come here and fake everything. But now he's trying to become a capitalist when he wasn't raised in that society. And so he's trying to learn it from books. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see him during the season reading these kind of how-to business books. It's sort of like how to succeed, how to run a company, how to do all these things, and and then practice what he's learning in the books. And can that work if it's not in your blood from the beginning?
0: America's success uh, stories of immigrants in Silicon Valley suggest that possibly it can, but maybe not in 1987. But but the question is also,
1: how does it make you feel? Again, we we live in a world where to be busy to the point of irritation is a kind of badge of honor. To be so put upon because you're tugged in so many directions is an indication of success. If you think about that for a moment, it, it really starts to crumble as an idea but if you were raised in it, it's what you shoot for,
0: Paige as well as looking different. She clearly is living apart. She's a student, she's not living with the parents she has that separation, but she's still you know we see she's you know she seems very close to her mother now and you know having kind of Russian cram school with with claudia and, <laughs> and 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 her mom and you know watching. Moscow does not believe in tears and all that stuff. There's actually more of a bond in many ways, now, even as she's you know having more of a separate life,
2: yeah, I mean that's well said, but it could have been our answer <laughs> you ask a question and then we'll say that as answer, but that's that's something said i mean we 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 love that the cram school that's funny, we never called it that, but we we wanted to tell that story because in a way, the question was how to how to have her grow up, but at the same time have this story of of becoming a spy with her mother kind of take on a new dimension or, or, or a new closeness that made sense for someone mm. who was also getting older. And that, that vehicle or that story of, of Claudia and her mother coming together to bring her into the life and the culture and the history and the home that she never knew, which could then serve the double function of Elizabeth herself being brought into the parts of it she missed because she left when she was so young, seemed to be an emotional story
0: there but speaking of elizabeth i mean obviously she's exhausted she's now doing double duty and all of that but the smoking because i've been watching more british shows where they it's okay for the hero to smoke but the hero can never smoke in america and i know it's
1: 1987 so maybe
0: that makes a difference but what was going on with the smoking
1: this season the show is actually sponsored by nicorette and (laughs) and nodos (laughs) so that we had to work those things (laughs) (laughs) in.
2: no look she's stressed out man She's heavily stressed
1: and tired and Where, tired. Was she's there she's doing Sorry. a lot of work. And the closer this summit gets, the more intense it's going to get. Wouldn't you be smoking if you were her?
0: I don't think I'd be smoking, but I'd be uh, doing something. In 1987 you would Maybe been I would have been in 1987.
2: Come on, June. And, and June, we've got to do five podcasts in the next hour. <laughs> here, <is>. Come on, <laughs> take a cigarette.
1: There's a lot of work for her to do, and she's doing it on her own. She's, she's all by herself. She's not worked without a partner until starting three years ago and probably when she started three years ago there wasn't nearly as much to do but the last months have gotten increasingly intense as this summit has approached and it's a lot
0: we get a glimpse of oleg in his new i don't know his new state his his new happy family life he's separated from the kgb he's got a cute little boy and a cute wife but he gets pulled back in. You guys oh, are so cruel. We're heartless. You really are. You have to um, be heartless
2: to be a writer, Jim.
0: It does seem terribly unfair to saddle one man with so many potentially history-changing decisions, though.
2: On the
1: plus side, we get to keep working with Costa Ronin. Yeah.
0: When Elizabeth goes to Mexico City, she gets a very scary piece of jewelry. Is the Jay's jewelry, the American's equivalent of Chekhov's gun. I mean, he was Russian after all. <laughs> well, you
2: saw what we did with Chekhov's gun with Martha. We don't follow. Yeah. We don't follow the dramatic <laughs> rules necessarily. Chekhov, Chekhov,
0: <laughs> He introduces a character in the first season. She will live or die by season five.
1: <laughs>
0: so it looks like Elizabeth.
1: I big thought you were going to ask us whether we were going to start a jewelry line. To which we were going to answer <laughs> that, yes. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the Jay's Jewelry Line. Of course. So of course. Many... www dot. This... Jewelry Line. It could come guy. with like a tic tac yeah, inside. Something. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> So it looks like Elizabeth's big undercover mission this season is going to be as Erica Haskard's home care nurse. I'm very struck by how clearly freaked out Elizabeth is by Erica's art. And can you say why that bothers her so much? Is it just that she's a hardline materialist? Why is she so freaked out by her drawings?
1: Elizabeth Jennings is n- not someone who has any place in her life for art except maybe socialist realist art that has an important statement to make about society and helps motivate people. But the idea of simply reflecting for the purpose of reflection of exploring what's in one's soul just doesn't occur to her as something to spend time on what Erica's husband does makes sense to her Mm -hmm. to be involved in government and involved in negotiating between countries that she can wrap her head around. But we thought it'd be interesting to see what happens when Elizabeth is forced to live around an artist and her art.
2: And we think her reaction, by the way, is, is not just freaked out. We think there's an element, an element of being drawn to it, huh. you know, because she's, she's staring at these paintings, right? She's staring at them. She is freaked out, but she's also keeps staring. Yeah. So there's some part of her, it may be unconscious, but there's some part of her that's, interested or drawn or, you know, confused, all these things. And fantastic casting of Miriam
0: Shaw, who's so good at being crazy, Isn't she great? Yeah, I mean, she's a great actress. What an actress. We see Oleg and Philip, use signaling to get messages to each other. That's kind of familiar to us, uh, having watched the show all these seasons. But from a practical point of view, how would two operatives who haven't worked together before sync up their codes and their signals?
2: So Philip has a pre-existing emergency contact signal. A way to recontact him, an emergency would be a place that he goes by every day on his way to and from work and that he's been trained for years, This was even before he quit, a place mm. that he would know to look every day as he passes by this mailbox to see if there's a signal. And through Arkady at the center, Arkady knows what this is because he's the deputy head of legal. So he's able to give Oleg mm. this signal site and say, leave a signal here. here. When Philip sees this, he'll know that you're contacting him and know what to do in response. The the first thing that happens is Oleg leaves the mark right. on the mailbox. That tells him to go to this site mm-hmm. and get a thing. And then whatever messages inside there are just their usual, usual Philip using whatever pad he's always had to, to decode the message. That's all stuff, the tradecraft that they would already used. The more interesting thing for us that we had to figure out, come up with a method for was how can... I'm not going to spoil this because coming up in future mm-hmm. episodes, there's something for the audience to think about that you'll see the answer to soon, which is how would Oleg, what kind of tradecraft would he use? These these are all called communication systems in espionage, communication system. So there's all kinds of prearranged communication systems between Philip and the center that Oleg can tap into through Arkady. And that's what we've been talking mm-hmm. about just now. Mm-hmm. But how can Oleg communicate back to the center? That's a problem because Oleg's not supposed to be here mm-hmm. and he doesn't have any way to communicate to the center that only Arkady would see. Any communication back to the center is going to go through whatever, signal clerks or whoever back in the center. If they see that, Arkady's going to be found out. By his boss is at the center and the whole jig's going to be up. Mm-hmm. So we had to figure out some kind of way, some kind of way. So the audience, you can ponder that. Use your own tradecraft and try to think if you had to have Oleg communicate to Arkady in the Soviet Union with nobody in the KGB finding out. And remember, it's the Soviet Union. Phones are tapped. Mm-hmm. Letters are read. What would you come up with? And you'll see our answer in a couple of episodes. Mm-hmm
0: one thing that happens in this episode that reads a little differently right now that it may even have three months ago is the incident between the guard and page because it's essentially he's harassing her it's a case of sexual harassment he's keeping something of us he's got her id he's got her address and the way that her mom takes care of it is a little harsh <laughs>
1: He deserves to lose his job. Yeah. He deserves to lose his job. I think today he would lose his job. Yeah. I don't know about, I don't know how far the movement's going to go. Knife in the neck. <laughs> Maybe that's a few years down the road. Yeah. But, uh, but, but he definitely, it's good he's not in that job anymore. The yeah. way he lost it is a little extreme, but.
2: Well, that's, it's, it's, it's an interesting it's, point yeah. you make that we wrote that in a different environment than we're in now. It's yeah. actually a very interesting point. I applaud that. Those... But it's funny when we talked about
1: the scene we did talk about how we did feel that there was something period appropriate about that way of hitting on a woman. Yeah. That it certainly could happen today but one would hope that someone at, at least would think twice about losing their job.
0: Right. We're at the beginning of the end. How was coming back to the writers room after the summer hiatus? This time around, was it different?
2: I think everything this year is different. The whole year is just has this giant, I don't want to make it sound too bad, but there's (laughs) a kind of giant cloud over everything, the cloud of the final season. For me, every day I walk to work, a little cloud hanging over my head about every block. It starts raining, (laughs) stops raining for a block, starts again, just a kind of general perpetual sadness for everything.
1: We also work with a level of neurotic intensity that I think – is definitely magnified this season. Oh my God. And process wise, at the end of last season, we started writing this season. We wrote the first two episodes. And normally, our process is we write the first two episodes, write the stories for about half the season, and then everybody goes off and writes their scripts. We come back at, in the new year. This season, we wrote those episodes, did all the story work, took some walks, canceled the first month of our vacation, oh. threw out those scripts rewrote them, rewrote all the stories, sent everybody off to write, took a truncated vacation, but still a nice vacation, then returned, threw out the two scraps, <laughs> rewrote all the stories. So it's been, it's been an intense ride. It feels better now because it seems to have been the only way to get here from there.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, we turned a corner too. After the third episode was done, we kind of got back on track. But when we were off track, we were sort of back to our first season suicidal oh, tendencies. Sort of like rough. all this stuff we'd learned over the years about how to make the show we'd forgotten. It was rough.
0: Yeah. Were there any other things that were different? Because, I mean, coming in for season six, especially it seems to me that there's a team that has largely, not entirely, but largely been together for many years, if not the whole time.
1: As we move towards the ending, it's as if we're in shrinking tunnel. So you're moving forward towards this target and everything is getting narrower and narrower around you. So the margin for error and your ability to correct is constantly lessening. Yeah. And that has just intensified the whole process for everyone, I think.
2: I mean the great joy and comfort of this show is is that group that's been there for you know for so long. In a way the experience we're describing and the one we're having of this kind of intensity and strangeness of the last season, the sadness of it, but but also the truth is there's a lot about it that's so, so great to be coming towards the end of this great experience. That's being shared by like a couple hundred people and and a couple hundred people who are, you know, talking about it and feeling it together and going through this thing all, all at the same time. And, and that's sort of indescribable. There's one song that I've always wondered if you'll do and it seems too I doubt
0: it.
1: obvious that you to do it.
0: Russians, right? The other oh, Russians, Russians love their uh,
1: children. That's hard to imagine.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's too on the nose for us.
0: Yeah. 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 On Breaking Bad, they did that song about blue, something or other in the final but, season.
1: Well, I remember them saying they were waiting yeah, all exactly. along to do it. But that was I think the difference is on Breaking Bad, I suspect on some level, their waiting was also a matter of saving. They were saving it. Yeah, Wait, yeah. saving it for that moment. But this show is different. You never want that cue that people are going to notice too much.
2: It's interesting with how many you know, songs we have where we'll find a song and it just, for so many reasons, it seems like the perfect song. And then there's one line in it that you can't edit around for whatever reason. Maybe it's a line in the chorus that just happens to relate too strongly to the action in the scene. And that's it. We won't use it. You know what, Joe? We should release an album for the show of
1: songs that are right for the show, but could never be used in the show. <laughs> Songs that weren't in the
2: American Songs that weren't oh, in the
1: American. we we do, you know, Life During Wartime, Talking Heads. We could do <laughs> Russians,
2: Sting. Yeah. Yeah. We could do, there's a whole list of them. I like the idea of releasing things that could be even cultier than the show. <laughs> <laughs> even more obscure. Right. <laughs> Up to
1: two people could be interested in that Spotify playlist. You know that's not true.
0: <laughs> and now, a conversation with costume designer Katie Irish. One note, we taped this interview in the costume shop, so you might hear delivery people, wrecks being moved around, and other sounds of people at work. I began by asking Katie what season six's three-year time jump meant for the costume department.
3: A lot of it was like starting over, especially for Paige, because Holly did not age three years and you know the six months we were off so trying to figure out what was going to work for her to make her look three years older than when we ended was was a good challenge so how did you indicate this is an independent young woman now with with clothes well a big thing was a haircut Honestly, Holly had this gorgeous, you know, waist length hair and I'm sure she's upset still. But I was like, I think she needs to cut her hair because that's a fast, quick read along with clothing that we're not where we were. Mm. Holly and the character of Paige has always been one that was a little more conservative. She favored the sweaters, the fair aisles, the plaid shirts, that kind of 80s. And so we wanted to push her into a more mature look. It was through trial and error. Honestly, I had a lot of different options when we did her first fitting before the season started. And the look that we settled on was something that was more boyfriend style. It's more kind of the oversized blazer with a nice shirt underneath and the boyfriend fit jeans that are rolled up and some converse or that kind of look, which Is different than her mother's, but still slightly reminiscent of Elizabeth, but definitely different from where we had seen her previously. And Paige does have some operational disguises. She does. She has a lot of light disguises this season. The difference for us between a light disguise and a heavy disguise comes down, honestly, to a wig. A light disguise is something that is believably from that character's closet, but they have a hat on or possibly they're wearing sunglasses or a pair of reading glasses kind Uh of thing. So it's altering your appearance a little bit, but it's not going fully into a different character.
0: We're not supposed to believe really, right, that Paige has this whole other
3: disguise wardrobe. No, we, we don't believe that Paige has gone into the operational garages with all the concealments and you know has 42 wigs and 16 purse options and right. all of that kind of thing.
0: Just in general, apart from operational disguises,
3: were there fashion or style changes in that three-year period? There were. We embraced the shoulder pad more. In 1984, the shoulder pad was still going strong, but because we had been progressively inching forward in time. We didn't want anything to be too jarring, but we were looking to make a visual break with the previous seasons. So we do have a bit of a stronger shoulder. Some of the colors have changed. We use a lot more black in the early eighties. There was a lot more Navy and less black. And in the later eighties, it's a lot more black and teal and jewel tones and that kind of color frame. And so we've really moved the color palette. So a lot of people's silhouettes have stayed similar but the shoulders have gotten a little bigger and the colours have shifted. Henry is now kind of this
0: athletic god, right? Yes. Um, And we see him even in his hockey uniform. What kind of story are you able to tell with Henry's clothes, especially with this element of distance? Henry
3: has escaped his family without knowing why he wanted to escape them. But it was always clear, you know, Henry was always at a friend's house or studying somewhere or doing something. He is able to wear clothes in a way that he wouldn't, I think, under the Jennings roof. And so we've embraced the athletic look for him. There were a lot of things then that were athleisure before we had the term athleisure. And so there were a lot of sweatshirts that were worn with jeans and a little bit more of a preppy style for him that I think Elizabeth would not have been so fond of. But I mean, he's at a boarding school in New Hampshire, so it doesn't get much preppier than that. I designed the school uniform and the hockey uniform. And I think it's the closest I'm ever going to get to designing a professional league uniform, (laughs) which is a dream of
0: mine. Let's talk about Philip. He's now a full time businessman. Mm -hmm. And it must be weird for you to only have to come up with one set of clothes for him this season.
3: It's it's been very odd because we're pulling like gangbusters for Elizabeth with all of her disguises. And then with Philip, it's like Philip in the travel agency, Philip in the travel agency, Philip in the. okay, great. He's (laughs) in the travel agency again. But we really did embrace the business side of him. And the the travel agency has had a makeover. And so with the travel agency having a makeover, we gave Philip a makeover as Mm. well. Philip has been pretty unhappy in previous seasons with his spying life. And so when Elizabeth pushed him to just leave the spying world behind and embrace the travel agency, in my mind, that was a clean break with what he had worn previously. So we had never really seen him in suits at all. He'd always been a separates kind of guy. And he would wear a lot of sweaters and soft things and sometimes a tie, but not always. And now with the new DuPont Circle, he's in suits and he has embraced the late 80s as far as what the suit fabrics are and the ties and pattern mixing and all kinds of fun things. As you mentioned, Elizabeth, she has so many characters that she's embodying. How did you go about
0: establishing those characters via clothes?
3: The first thing we always do is look at research. I go through and I read the scripts and I read the character bios that the writer's room gives us. And sometimes the writer's room in the bios, it's nothing that is pertinent to the script, but it's pertinent to me. You know, is this a divorced housewife or is this someone who has always lived alone and, you know, is living paycheck to paycheck? While that might not be essential story-wise, it tells me where this person would shop, how the clothes would fit, how expensive the clothes are, what is the story that she is trying to tell, or who is she trying to fit in with. And so I go through and I do all the research and I put together research boards. And at the same time I'm doing that, the hair and makeup teams are doing tests of all of the wigs and different glasses and different makeup looks. And does this person need freckles or contacts or, you know, all of the considerations about how long is this disguise playing? Does this disguise have a lot of speaking? We can't use prosthetic teeth. All of those kind of things, which then begins to narrow down what we can do for each one. And then we land on visuals and they get approved. And I have a fitting with Carrie and we just start going through a rack's loads of clothes and seeing what fits and what feels right. Yeah. And she absolutely weighs in on, yes, this feels right, or, you know, this is a little little weird, or, you know, I think this character would have pockets, or things like that. Practical things, yeah. also.
0: Let's talk about Elizabeth. How has Elizabeth changed with these three years, and, and also with her exhaustion?
3: Well, as you say, it's the exhaustion. Elizabeth has picked up what Philip has stopped doing. And I think the first episode does a really nice job of showing that she's, literally running sometimes from one to the next to the next. And those moments we do see her, I'm thinking of one scene where she's standing outside and she's just in a baseball hat and sweater and she's just smoking a cigarette in the rain. And it's the first private moment we see as Elizabeth and it's three quarters of the way through the episode. It happens a long ways in. Mm. And so she is tired, but it's also been interesting because neither of the children lives at home anymore. And so there's not the pretense, even though Paige knew what mom and dad did, Henry didn't. And so there's no having to turn the water on to have the conversations with Philip. There's nothing about, where's Henry, before you start into a conversation. And she's also not really going into the travel agency. So we still see some of the classic Elizabeth in her style as far as the shirts and the nice tailored pants and a great, you know, overcoat with strong shoulders. But those are more rare than they have been in the previous seasons. It's mostly been about going from one disguise to the next or seeing her at these moments of calm. And I won't say unguarded because I don't think Elizabeth is ever unguarded. But the most unguarded we see her where it's just her time. Yeah. And
0: Stephanie, the home care nurse, tell me about that character and how she's defined by her clothes.
3: She is in a version of a uniform. This is before scrubs, which everybody, when we were starting research, I was like, she's in scrubs. I was like, guys, we didn't have scrubs outside of the OR in 1987. Mm -hmm. Nurses were still wearing white dresses in the hospital in 1987, which everybody forgets, me included, but you go back and you look at the research, you're like, oh, right, General Hospital. Yeah, everyone is still wearing that. And so then it became about what would someone wear that is a practical thing that could be machine-washed because you're dealing with bodily fluids, quite frankly, and has a lot of pockets and Mm -hmm. is very comfortable for what she's going to do. We know she's on the night shift specifically. So she's there all night taking care of a, a woman who's dying. Mm-hmm. So it needed to have a comfort level. It needed not to be overly expensive. And also we definitely wanted to play down how attractive Carrie Russell is. So one of the fastest ways any woman can play down how attractive she is, is some nice elastic waisted pants. So <laughs> we began with an elastic waisted pant that, you know, had a little more volume. And then if you put a pink polyester zip front tunic on top of it, that's going a long ways to, to help in making someone not look their best. Right. The Haskirts mm-hmm. are
0: also new this year. Now, Glenn seems like a basic office worker type who, when he gets home, he doesn't even change really. He just kind of loosens his tie. Mm-hmm. Is that basic kind of way of dressing harder? Or can you show that little bit of personality?
3: you show the personality and how they choose to differentiate themselves when they're at home. One of the things we know about Glenn is that he's working on this nuclear summit, which is why Elizabeth is obviously there, but he is dedicated to his work and he is dedicated to his wife who is also dying. I talked with Scott, Scott Cohen plays the character Glenn. We decided that when he's at work, obviously, you know, he's buttoned up, he has suits, he has separates. And when he gets home, he makes himself comfortable. But he is not taking off and getting into a. He's not warm and fuzzy. He also, his home life isn't warm and fuzzy right now. And so there was that kind of practical consideration. And he has a limited closet and so it's been really interesting just picking those exact pieces because you know they're going to play over and over and over again. How do they mix and match? It's like a real life. You only have limited closet space, right. and so what are you mix and matching this with this, you know, this week? And Erica,
0: mm-hmm. who, as you say, is dying. She's, she's not just sick. She's dying, and she knows she's
3: dying. Everybody knows it. So how do you dress her? By the time we meet Erica she is already bedridden. And so the disease is fairly advanced at that point. But Erica is an artist. And so one of the things that I talked with Miriam Shore, who plays Erica, about is obviously she's wanting to be comfortable. She's not going out of the house. Through the character's comments, we know she doesn't give a damn about what (laughs) anybody else thinks about her. So it's clothing that would be for her. And you don't just... Buy clothes to die in. So these are clothes that she had from her previous life. So, one of the things that I love that I use a lot on her is a batik nightgown. It's a cotton nightgown and it has a little bit of flair. It's different than just a cotton nightgown, it's different than the nightgowns we saw Martha in, it's different than the nightgowns Sandra wore. And so, it has a little personality. But on top of that, one of the things as someone is dying is that your blood begins to go away from your extremities and you're always cold. So we have big, thick socks on her and we have a cardigan that she kind of always wears. And we mix and match things that way. So sometimes she's got flannel pajama pants on with a nightgown. Sometimes she has, you know, the cardigan on and sweatpants. And it's just, again, it's, it's a mishmash. She doesn't, she's not seeing anyone and she doesn't care.
0: Well, we are in season six, which we know is the final season. How is that playing out for you guys? I, When I came in here, I thought, oh, it'll be empty. Not at all. The place is more full than ever. So
3: We're jam-packed. Uh, we are currently shooting four episodes at once. And that's just for scheduling purposes. I mean, sometimes it makes sense if you have one location that plays in three episodes to shoot those three episodes all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're doing. And... Honestly, it's just starting to get to the point where I'm thinking that we're coming to an end because Mm -hmm. we have been working at a breakneck pace Mm -hmm. as far as how many disguises, the action. I mean, it's the final season of a spy series. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. And so we're just now starting to get to that point where I'm thinking, oh my God, I have one fitting left for Matthew and that's it. And that there are no more after. I really only need to see him one more time. And that's... That's weird. But again, there's a lot to get through till we get to that one fitting. So trying to just keep pushing forward and not dwell on it too much. Before we sign off this week, a quick word from Chris
0: Long, who directed this episode. The Americans famously recreates Washington and Moscow in New York City. So I asked Chris if they went to Mexico to film Elizabeth's scene with General Koftun. Uh,
4: Well, we went to Spanish Harlem, (laughs) uh, which, which really I thought looked great for Mexico City. And the funny thing was, I'm very, very light aware. And the day we were supposed to shoot, I jumped out of the van for the 7 a.m., 8 o'clock call. And I looked up and the sun was absolutely perfectly streaming through the clouds, just in the way that one would think Mexico City would look. And we'd had the most dreary days prior to that rain and everything else. And I was like, oh, dear, I really want to have the weather. And I just, it was just one of those absolutely gorgeous New York days where you wake up and the sun's streaming through. We would do to shoot the inside bit first and then come out later on and shoot the outside bit. But I just said to everybody, the light is so fantastic. The light is so fantastic that we've got to shoot now. And they said to me, well, we don't have any extras because all the extras are supposed to be coming later. If you look at that shot and you think, well, Mexico City is not very busy. I sort of juggled between beautiful light and not having any extras in the background of it. And I went with beautiful light. So if you wonder why Mexico City doesn't look very busy at that moment. because I decided to switch the shooting order because of the light and suffered not having many extras.
0: Thanks to Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields, Katie Irish and Chris Long for talking episode 601 with me. Thanks also to Daniel Schrader for recording assistance and to the American Sarah Nolan for her organisational help. Please join us next week when we'll be discussing episode 602, Tchaikovsky, with some very special guests. I'm June Thomas. Thank you for listening.